BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. In his new book, Major Labels, journalist and music critic Kella Fasani takes on the last 50 years of popular music through seven defining genres, rock, R&B, country, punk, hip hop, dance, and pop. Sané highlights key artists and events in music's evolution, but also explores how the kind of music we like shapes our identity, how we understand ourselves, and how we're seen by others. So which musical genre are you? Or do you tune out the labels? Farm is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For Califasene growing up, being into a certain band or a style of music was more than just being into a certain band or style of music. It said, and continues to say, something about who you are. And Sene writes in his new book, Major Labels, at 14 years old, quote, I was punk. Kelly is a staff writer for The New Yorker and former music critic for The New York Times. Welcome to Forum, Kelly Thanks so much for having me and for playing me on with some Dead Kennedys. <laughs> yeah. A classic. So how did Dead Kennedys become one of your favorite bands back then? You know, at the time it seemed obvious. And then in retrospect, I had to kind of piece it together, right? I'm a, I'm a kid in Connecticut in 1990, um, an immigrant, the children of uh, two immigrants from Africa, 
And something about this punk rock music, the stuff that was made in the 1970s, the stuff that was more recent, it just blew my mind. And the question later was why? And I think one reason is because this stuff just sounded kind of angry and weird and crazy. And there was some, some thrill to that. But what I really think it represented was the idea of having an opinion, the idea that you could reject some music and embrace others. You know, before Mm -hmm. punk, I just figured music was like this thing you listen to and all your friends were into it and that's cool. And this is cool. And it comes on the radio. But the idea that you could take a more active role, a more discriminating role as a music listener and really have opinions and decide that some music was bad, not just not just mediocre, but like somehow morally wrong and that punk was morally right. The idea that you could set aside the Rolling Stones and say, I'm never listening to that stuff again. I'm only going to listen to bands like the Dead Kennedys. I mean, for me, obviously, that proved about as wrong as Jello Biafra's (laughs) prediction that Jerry Brown was going to become president. But for a few years, man, it felt right. Yes, that totally makes sense with this idea of asserting your identity. You also wrote in the book that I loved punk because I didn't really see my family represented in it. What does that mean? Well, I think for many people, music does two things at once. It gives you a the thrill of the exotic and the foreign, maybe something, something that's scary. And it gives you a bit of familiarity, right? You think of all these kids gazing up at David Bowie on stage in the 1970s. And like, he's a rock star, he's an extraterrestrial. Like the whole idea is he's impossibly glamorous, but at the same time you see some connection. So for me, that was punk. For me, punk was scary, sometimes literally scary. The the second punk show I ever saw was a band called Fugazi from DC. And they were playing a show in Boston. And it was the first time I'd ever seen skinheads in person. And I'd heard Mm. scary stuff about skinheads. And I was like, are are these guys going to beat me up? Like, what's going to happen here? And people are slam dancing in the pit. And Ian Mackay from Fugazi is like yelling at the crowd to simmer down. And it was just so exciting. It was so thrilling. The idea of the danger and the menace was part of the excitement. And similarly, when I'm listening to the Sex Pistols, I'm not thinking like, oh, these are just like my friends at school. They're just like me. We can all make music. No, I'm like, who are these? guys what is this music where does it come from at the same time of course as a sort of annoying obnoxious opinionated 14 year old i did see something of myself in them but it wasn't the part of myself that someone else might have expected me to see in them and the fact that it was Mm -hmm. unusual the fact that it seemed like this foreign territory that i could claim as my own rather than something that was just given to me that was part of the power of the music yeah, I remember reading that you said your your dad liked Cora music and that your parents, like the main contemporary album they listened to was like Paul Simon's Graceland. Yes, that was the one. That's the one I remember playing in the house. And, you know, because maybe of their upbringing, you know, it wasn't one of those houses where there's like Buddy Holly and Bruce Springsteen on the family stereo. Um, you know, they listened to a lot of classical music. M- my father was from Gambia in West Africa, and there's the griot tradition there. And, you know, he was part of the cast of people that would traditionally pay the griots, and the griots would sort of sing your praises. He, he named me after some of these compositions. So there was that music in the house and I just didn't care that much about it. I think like a lot of kids, it takes getting older to to really start to love their parents' music. And, you know, but that kind of left me on my own to find stuff and figure out what kind of stuff I was going to identify with. Another thing that I was struck by that you said is that you think music more than say books or films or other forms of artistic entertainment defines people. Why music? 
I don't know. I, I think it has some, and when I say define people, I mean like people love books and they love theater, but you don't go to a high school a high school and say, oh, well, those are the kids who, li- who read that author over there. And those are the kids who read that author over there. Like we don't, we don't necessarily use books or theater to build our identity in the same way. I think part of the reason we do that with music is that it's cheap and it's sneaky. And what I mean by that is like, Kids can just create something new. You don't have to get a major studio to finance your thing. You know, uh, some some woman in her bedroom can just create some new thing. And even before the Spotify era, it was relatively cheap to make a band, to make a song, to put something out there. And because of that, it tends to move quickly and evolve quickly. And also when I say it's sneaky, what I mean is that you don't have to stop your life to listen to music the way you do when you go see a play. Even when you watch a movie, you know, you sit down and front of the screen and that's what we're going to do we're going to watch a movie music can sneak into your life in a in a supermarket in the background of a of an ad right you can go out to a club and there's music playing in the background but you're talking and socializing the whole time and you're listening to these songs over and over again more than we reread mm. books or even more than we rewatch movies and so it finds its way into your brain as the soundtrack to social experiences and so i think as a reason as a result when we listen to music often we're thinking about people. We're thinking about the people who made it, but we're also thinking about the other people who listen to it. And part of the fun, part of the thrill of popular music for younger listeners and for some of us who are no longer quite so young is that you can imagine yourself into a different world. You can become the kind of person who listens to death metal by listening to death metal, right? You can figure out what the world feels like and looks like by listening to a, an album of Smokey Robinson slow jams. And that's part of the excitement really of music, I think. I see. Well, well, let me put this out to the audience. I'm curious, listeners, what musical genre or band was pivotal in shaping your identity when you were young? Or do you still subscribe to that genre of music in adulthood? Why or why not? We're talking with Kella Fasane, author of Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. He's also staff writer at The New Yorker and a former pop music critic for The New York Times. And you can join by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. So you divide this book into seven genres. How did yes. you narrow it to these seven? <laughs> it, could, it could be it could be much more, right? You could you could have a whole chapter on like melodic death metal, and then another one on progressive death metal, right? Like you could zoom in, or you could zoom way out and see popular music as a genre, as distinct from jazz or opera or something else. But I wanted to write something about really popular music, about the genres that have affected what's on the pop charts, what's playing in the arenas, what's coming out of people's radios. And, and these seven genres seem to overlap and seem to be a way of drawing in a lot of popular music, even if it meant that some stuff had to be left out. I mean, this idea of genre, I had a sort of a friendly reason and a mischievous reason to organize this book, this history of music around genre. Uh, the friendly reason was it was a big story I was trying to tell. I was trying to tell the story of what happened in popular music since the Beatles broke up, basically. How did popular music get so weird and so obscure and so fragmented. And one answer to that is that people, that these genres arose with their sub-sub-genres and a genre in music is really a community, right? It's a community of listeners and a community of musicians. And often the way that this music evolves is through these communities and through discussions within these communities, huh. often arguments within these communities, right? Yes. The people who were maddest about what's happening in Nashville 
tend to be country singers and country listeners because they're the ones who feel like they have a stake in what's going on in Nashville, right? R&B singers throughout the history of the genre have had this complicated relationship of wanting to be part of this R&B community, but not wanting to be limited to that R&B community. So there is that push-pull. And to me, the story, a way to tell this story and make it feel like a story as opposed to just an encyclopedia was to tell these seven stories of these seven genres or seven communities that shape what we hear. The mischievous reason to talk about genres is because I feel like genres get a bad rap. I feel like people are always talking about, people like me sometimes, I'm sure I've been guilty of it, talking about performers who transcend genre, who cross genres, who aren't limited by genre, right? The idea is that genres are limiting and bad and really good music involves mixing and matching and freedom and all that stuff. And yeah, there are some musicians who do that. But if you think about a genre as a community, then I think you have to think there's nothing wrong with making music that exists within a community and exists to please and thrill members of that community. Luther Vandross never had a number one pop hit. He was very much an R&B singer, but he's one of the great singers of all time. And part of the strength of his, mu of his music and the, the connection that it generated was that R&B listeners could claim him as one of their own. So mm -hmm. I think genres maybe are underrated in a sense. And I wanted to make a case for the power of genre, which is also a case for the power of division. It's something that when we're talking about America, when we're talking about politics, it's easy to look at the downsides of division, of divisiveness. This in a way is a book about the upsides of division. So the first genre you cover in your book is rock music, and you want to talk about Led Zeppelin's song, Rock and Roll. Why? What about rock and roll? And we just have well, about a minute right now. Yeah. This is a song from 1971. The song is called Rock and Roll. It's one of these great Led Zeppelin tracks. So it's from exactly 50 years ago. And it's a song about nostalgia. It's a song about the good old days of rock music. And it's a song about self-consciousness, right? I'm a rock singer in a rock band, but I remember the old days of rock and roll when rock and roll was like this, right? It's a meta rock and roll song, a rock and roll song about rock and roll. And it's a good example of how ever since then, for out, throughout this half century that I write about, rock and roll has been self-conscious. Rock and roll has been old fashioned. This music that was once new has been old for a long time. And Led Zeppelin rock and roll is a great example of that. Well, let's listen to it going into the break. Stay with us here listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. That's an RF, R&B track from MS, MFSB, one of the many genres that we're talking about today as we talk about the last 50 years of music history and the core genres that defined it with Kella Fasene, author of Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, Rock, R&B, Country, Punk, Hip Hop, Dance, and pop. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Tell us what genre or band was pivotal in shaping your identity and has being a fan of a certain artist or genre helped you find community? What has that meant to you? 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Califaseni, you have described R&B as a catch-all classification for popular and danceable records made by Black musicians. And I was also really struck by this description of it that you said it had in terms of having these twin impulses throughout history, like this desire to be mainstream, but at the same time forge a deeper connection with black, with black listeners. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, you see that in the history of Motown, right? Which Motown is is formed by this desire by Barry Gordy to make these big crossover records, these records that everyone can listen to, to be, as Barry Gordy put it, the sound of young America. By the late 60s, something else is happening, though. This thing called soul music is emerging, which is kind of another term for the same thing, but it's a term that emphasizes identity. It emphasizes culture. The idea is soul is not just something you play, it's something you are, something you have, right? And soul music is going to be Black music. Maybe it's going to be music with a with, with a message, right? And so, and so Motown in the late 60s or early 70s has to pivot because the spirit has changed away from like the cool thing being let's make records for everyone these big pop hits to let's making let's make music that is intentionally speaking to black listeners right and and out of that shift you get the great Stevie Wonder records of the 1970s you get the great Marvin Gaye records of the 1970s and so there is this push and pull towards do we want to go out and make records that appeal to quote unquote everyone that cross over and go pop or do we want to stick to really making records that speak to this core listenership, which is largely or disproportionately African-American? Obviously, if you want to make money, the way to do that is to have a big pop hit. But America is a country that is currently you know, about 12% Black. So if you have a record that's reaching everyone, if you have a record that's reaching an audience that looks like America, then you're going to be reaching a predominantly white audience. And Black listeners are going to be a small minority. You, you see this push and pull with Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston comes out of the gate in the 1980s and has unexpected, unexpected success at pop radio. Her label thinks she's going to be an R&B singer, but pop radio starts playing her records and she becomes basically a pop star which is great. It means that everyone gets to hear this amazing voice that she has, but it also means that she's kind of maybe considered to be not exactly a real R&B singer. Uh, one magazine calls her the prom queen of soul. And in the in 1989 at the Soul Train Awards, she even gets booed 
by some people when she's nominated in an R&B category because the perception is that she's not R&B enough. And, 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 and in the wake of that, she really kind of changes her approach a little bit to emphasize her connection to R&B. And, and that's a good example of how there's a lot you can, gain, you can gain from breaking out of musical community, but a lot of musicians still like to feel like they are part of the musical community that they call home. Like Casey Musgraves, the country singer, who's upset right now because she was nominated for Grammy Awards in the pop category. And, and to her, that feels like an insult because she wants to be part of that country world, even as she would love everyone to be able to listen to her. Yeah, th those sort of arguments, those intense ways of wanting to define or to exclude and so on is so much a part of musical history and intensity that I'm curious whether or not um, you feel like you still see to the state. It sounds like you do as you're bringing up some more contemporary examples. But, but going back a little bit to the history of R&B, one of the other things that I was really struck by was your discussion of race records. And, and you quote Dave Bartholomew at one point, a black songwriter who worked with Fats Domino, who said about R&B, we had the rhythm and blues for many, many year. And then here come in a couple of white people and they call it rock and roll. And it was rhythm and blues all the time. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what was going on there. Well, so this is this is a, a common theme in the history of rock and roll, right? In the 1960s, things are a little bit mixed up and you have you have rock rock and roll and R&B sometimes used to refer to similar or the same records right you have the supremes are considered part of the rock and roll revolution alongside the beatles and so things are a little bit more mixed up. And in the 70s, you start to see really a kind of a split and rock and roll comes to be considered music largely performed by and for white listeners. And a lot of black artists come to be grouped under R&B. And, you know, there are there's a way to look at that where you say like, oh, this music was stolen. Right. Although, of course, there are white and black influences both in 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 rock and roll and Again, a lot of people have mixed feelings about this idea that rock and roll has kind of become white music or comes to be considered white music. It's white guys with electric guitars, right? And in one way, that's kind of unfair, right? And it leaves some people out. The story of 1970s rock and roll is a story that could absolutely include Shaka Khan with Rufus. It could absolutely include Parliament Funkadelic, Sly and the Family Stone, these great Black acts that are often considered part of the R&B story. But what I say in my book is that if you were to consider those acts rock and roll and not R&B, you know, maybe R&B loses something. Maybe there's something powerful that you get when you think of Sly Stone alongside Marvin Gaye, and you think of them both engaging a similar or an overlapping tradition of black music. You know, in the, you talk about race records in the, in the early 1980s, the, the bill, billboard has its soul music category and that chart gets renamed black music. And this is a really interesting, really controversial moment. You know, some artists say like, hey, this is great. Like, because black music is an inclusive term. It includes all the different kinds of music that are part of the African-American experience, right? It can include R&B, it can include blues, gospel, jazz. What an inspiring vision and what a way to pay tribute to the fact that this is black music. Let's name it, let's claim it. 
Other musicians say, this also feels a bit like segregation. And I don't want the fact to be that just because I'm a black person making music, it's classed as black music. And underlying all of this is what I think of as the mathematical fact of population in America, right? If you have a genre where the listeners are predominantly black as, as, as has existed with, with R&B, for example, what that also ends up meaning is that you're gonna have a, a bunch of genres where the listeners are mainly white. If you, if you have black music, then mathematically, that means you'll probably have white music too, because the white people are going to be listening to something. And, and that question of how we think about black music and how we think about white music is something that a lot of artists have struggled with. You see that in country music and country singers struggling with this question of like, well, what does it mean to be country? Is this white music? Is this Southern music, right? Tim McGraw has this great song, Southern Voice, where he talks about being in the tradition of Hank Williams and Hank Aaron. Right. There's something inspiring about that, although, of course, in its own way, that's exclusive, too, because that implies that country music is only for people from the South. So any way that you define any community is going to include some people and exclude some others. Hmm. We're talking about Califasene about the history. We're talking with Califasene about the history of music through his book, Major Labels, also about the way that music creates and also excludes communities. And we've invited you, our listeners, to share music bands or genres that have meant a lot to you, helped you form community or helped you individualize and form your identity. Let me go to Allegra in Mountain View. Hi, Allegra. Hi there. I'm loving your show. Um, I'm Generation X, so I grew up in the 80s when middle school was called junior high. And, you know, for us, it was Michael Jackson and Madonna and Cyndi Lauper. And, you know, it feels maybe like a cliche today, but when I go into, you know, stores of all types, you hear 80s music playing. And I have to think that the store managers are now, you know, 50 like I am and, you know, grew up in the 80s. And that's the music they need to play. Um, so maybe it's not such a cliche after all. And we're in community. Thanks, um, Allegra. You know, thank you so much. Well, is it as simple as that, Califa, uh, that they're trying to kind of appeal to Allegra? Is there some cultural stuff going on with the, with the 80s music there? There is something to be said for that. I remember in the 80s how popular 50s and 60s culture was. You think of movies like Back to the Future, which is all about going back to the 50s and, and, and Chuck Berry, right? And, you know, so I think that's true. I think also you have to remember the 80s were a moment of some mixing and matching in the world of pop, right? It's, it's, the, it's the Michael Jackson era who is, you know, starts his career as a Motown artist. By the 80s, he's no longer on Motown, but he's this who comes up in the world of R&B and becomes the defining pop star of his generation. And what's, what's interesting to remember is that at the time, some people were worried about what that meant for R&B. In other words, the fact that all this music was mix mixing and matching in the pop mainstream seemed to some people like a threat to R&B. The, the perceptive cultural critic Nelson George publishes the death of rhythm and blues near the end of the 80s. And it's all about this idea that if everyone's chasing pop success, everyone's chasing crossover, what's going to be left in the R&B community? And so, you know, often these moments when everything's coming together are moments when some other people feel left out and moments that often end up generating a backlash, right? After the 80s, you get the 90s, where it very much is about separate groups and it's grunge over here and it's gangster rap over there. And the way to be successful is to be in one of these communities rather than to make mainstream pop, quote unquote. So the pendulum is always swinging back and forth between these two impulses, these two things that we ask of music. We want it to be a thing that brings everyone together, and we want it to be a way that we can separate ourselves a little bit. 
Well, Michelle writes, I'm a deadhead. I tend to hide it a bit from those around me because I don't want to be typecast as a person who listens to the Grateful Dead. The other day, a good friend of mine leaned in and said to me, you know, everyone at parties refers to you as that hippie girl, right? <laughs> I found that so funny and was secretly delighted. <laughs> don't hide it. The dead, yeah. are, the dead are awesome. The dead have been vindicated by history. I, I think that's, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, they just showed how you can create your own world, right? I contrast them in the book to a lot of the progressive rock bands that existed at the time. And, you know, in the 1970s, maybe the, the Grateful Dead were thought of as old fashioned, right? This is the last remnants of 60s hippie culture, while these other progressive rock groups are blasting into the future. But what, what, the, what the Grateful Dead showed is that one way to last is to build your own subculture, to build your own world. And that world has proved enormously self-sustaining as well as influential. I mean, I think at the risk of um, of disagreeing with, with, with the person who wrote in, you know, I think the dead are considered pretty cool. Like that's a pretty unimpeachable band to like. I, I rarely meet people now who have anything bad to say about the dead. I, I myself, as a punk rocker, it took me a few years. Uh, Anthem of the Sun was my gateway drug into the Grateful Dead. But uh, yeah, I love the dead and it, it, it showed a different way of making music. And again, it showed the importance of musical community. And I love Michelle's comment because it just, as you say, it does really remind us of when we're thinking about a musical genre we're actually thinking about a type of person a lot yes. of times are like a musical I, band yes and especially when we're saying something bad about a musical genre <laughs> right we're thinking i don't want to be like those people who listen to that thing right that's a powerful human uh tendency let me go to caller jeff and campbell hi jeff hey there guys i'm loving the show uh, I just wanted to share that uh, I grew up, my mom was a big Led Zeppelin fan, and so she taught me all about the uh, enjoyable moments of rock and roll in real bands playing real instruments. But I didn't really discover my own identity until a uh, child of the millennial growed up playing video games, and I was playing a game called Crazy Taxi, and I discovered a band called Offspring, and uh, I just loved it because it was fast and in your face, and there was one one lyric that was offensive to my mom that had a cuss word or something. And she always would yell at me to turn it down. And it just kind of pushed me into there, in, into that band even harder with the uh, rebellious against your parents phase. And I mean, it just led me into that whole genre of the uh, the punk rock and yes. started to discover a lot of other things, too. Loved it. Jeff, and, thanks. And and that's one thing that music can do well, right? Punk rock, uh, rock and roll in general, one of the things it does brilliantly is in the 50s and 60s is create a generation gap, right? Like you can listen to music that your parents hate. And one of the big ironies of rock and roll is that it ends up, I say in my book, it ends up being the most traditional of the seven genres that I write about. In other words, a rock band 50 years ago, it's a drummer, a bass player, a guitarist or two, maybe a keyboardist and someone singing. And like, that's a rock band today. Today. And in fact, if you talk to someone today who says they like rock and roll, I bet you they probably like a lot of the same bands that people might have liked 50 years ago. They probably love Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, the Who. Rock and roll ends up being like the genre that remains stubbornly itself. And rock and roll parents now often share musical interests with rock and roll kids, whereas hip hop, being a little bit younger, has really kept changing. And if you're a if, if you're a hip hop parent and you grew up on Run DMC and your kid is a hip hop kid and your kid loves Kodak Black and 
NBA young boy, you might be horrified that, by that because hip hop changes so much that it keeps horrifying successful genera successive generations of listeners. I sometimes <laughs> say that science has proven that hip hop was at its best whenever you were in high school. <laughs> Well, Jeff, thanks for the comment. Let me read this listener's comment. Uh, this listener writes, I feel drawn to singer-songwriters and especially female singer-songwriters. When I was younger, I was really into Fiona Apple, Sarah McLaughlin, and Nelly Furtado. As I got older, I gravitated towards Mexican singers such as Julieta Venegas, Natalia Laforcade, and Carla Morrison. I think it's important to support musicians who don't get the recognition they deserve, and often that's women. Uh, so you mentioned rock you mentioned hip-hop what do you think is if you had to say what the most dominant genre is right now what would you say it is i mean well, it's funny you should mention that hip hop is everywhere and is dominant. One of the big changes we've seen in the last five or 10 years is the rise of Latin pop music. Um, Latin music for much of the history I write about was its own world deserving of its own equally fat book about all the different genres and the subgenres. And one thing that's happened is the musical marketplace has gotten more global. And because of that, you see artists, even the term crossover has kind of changed, right? In the old days of Selena or something, we talked about how singers from the world of Latin pop were trying to cross over into the, the Anglo mainstream, as it were. But, you know, there are more Spanish speakers in the world than English speakers. So if anyone, now you see the reverse, you see English pop, I mean, English speaking pop stars crossing over. You see Justin Bieber trying to learn a little Spanish, right? You see Snoop Dogg trying to making an ad with Bad Bunny, trying to be as cool as bad bunny so that is one of the big the big changes that we've seen and and you know maybe that means that some musicians who wouldn't have gotten their due end up getting their due but the truth is and this is something i learned when i was a pop music critic at the new york times it's impossible to pay attention to everything and, and whatever you're looking at whatever you're obsessed with whatever you're focused on there's something just outside your periphery going on that you don't quite know about that yeah. you're missing. And, and yeah. to me, that's what makes music so addictive is, is that is I, 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 that curiosity, that that knowledge that something is happening out there and I don't know about it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that that's what it does. And it's not overwhelming. <laughs> We're going to hear a little NWA going into the break. I, I wonder if you want to say 30 seconds on on NWA and their role. Yeah, NWA, it's funny, at the time when people were talking about gangster rap, right? And the idea that this was like this weird new subgenre of hip hop. But gangster rap evolves to just mean any rap record with explicit lyrics. And these days, that's just about all of them. So the modern tradition of hip hop is basically gangster rap. And, and that's what NWA helped popularize with this record that changed the world as much as the, the Nevermind record or any of the other big uh, watersheds. We're talking music, musical categories with Kella Fasene. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Around here, don't listen to the Beatles run. Old Bo Cephas threw a jukebox needle at the honky tonk where they boot stomp all night. What? Right. Yeah, what to call work, digging in the dirt. Gotta get it in the ground for the rain come down to get paid to get the girl in your four wheel drive. Yeah, the boys around here. It's a little Blake Shelton boys around here. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the last 50 years of music history and the core genres that defined it with Kella Fasane, a staff writer at The New Yorker, former pop music critic for The New York Times, author of the new book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. And you, our listeners, are with us sharing the musical influences that shaped your life, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, to call us, email us, forum at kqed.org, get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Just before the break, we were talking hip-hop a little bit, and there was this moment in the book, Califa, where you talk about how hip-hop made you appreciate the struggle and that you could hear the hustle in people, right? Yeah. The hustle yeah. that they were the doing. Hustle. You could hear it in so many other kinds of music as well after hearing yeah. it in hip hop, including country. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you mean and whether that connects to this song from Blake Shelton or not? Sure. I mean, well, th- there's two connections. One is that, you know, as a, as a, as a pig headed punk rocker, I was really skeptical of success of, you know, bands, bands that recorded for big record corporations, which we referred to as major labels, you know, that was the enemy, right? We wanted the underground, like no one was trying to have a pop hit, but hip hop had a different mindset, right? And so when I'm obsessed with the Wu-Tang Clan, as I was in the nineties, as many people were, were, it was exciting to watch them try to conquer the mainstream. It was exciting to see them get big record deals and open to, you know, start a fashion line and try to get up the billboard charts, you're rooting for them to take over, right? And so that idea of rooting for for your favorite artists to conquer and being interested in the idea of what does it mean to have a hit record? How do you make a hit record? What does it mean to have a song that resonates with a lot of people? And and how can that be exciting as opposed to being something to be scared of or allergic to? Hip hop definitely taught me that and certainly hear that in all other sorts of music. In that Blake Shelton clip that, that that you just played, you know, I've that song is so funny and so fascinating to me because he's singing about how we don't listen to the Beatles. You know, we listen to Bo Cephas, Hank Williams Jr., who's like an icon of country music, but he's rapping. 
So he's rapping about how his identity is pure country music. And that's something that often happens in these genres where often when you really play the part, you really act the part and you play up your credentials as part of this community, paradoxically, that can give you more freedom to explore other kinds of music, right? You're saying I'm the countryest country person that ever lived and I'm rapping, but it's fine because I'm extremely country. And that's something, you know, you see that with hair metal bands in the in the 80s, right? And their whole look is like, we're super rock and roll and we're wearing leather and spandex and all this <laughs> stuff. And, and their big hits are often power ballads, right? And, the, and they can sing <laughs> these mushy love songs sitting at the piano because they've established their rock and roll credentials. And, and what it really means is that if you're going to show membership in a community, one way to do it is to make the music in a traditional way. One way to do it is to say, look, I might not be from the South. I might have grown up somewhere else, but I love banjo and mandolin and pedal steel, and I'm going to make country music in the traditional way. The other way of doing it is saying like, no, I'm part of this culture. And so I'm going to make whatever kind of music I want, and it's still going to be country. I'm going to be Dolly Parton making a disco record, and it's still country because I'm Dolly Parton, right? And, and both of those ways are exclusive in their way as well as inclusive, right? In other words, someone who's not Dolly Parton can't make a disco record and assume it just be country. You can only do that if you grew up the way that she did. So, you know, all of these ways of, of, of defining music, often there are bits of freedom and bits of obligation that are mixed together in complicated ways. Well, let me go to caller Rob at San Francisco. Hi, Rob. Hi, how you doing? Great. So my comment really is, I'm not sure if I'm going to add to or detract from the conversation, but, you know, genre labeling is, is basically just a marketing uh, thing for record companies. And, yeah, it kind of has some practical value. But when we label uh, a music this way or that way, we actually lose a little bit of the information and the beauty of, of the music itself. Absolutely, R&B is the roots of rock and roll and unbelievable musicians all throughout that history. And there's definitely divergence between rock and roll and R&B. But at the same point, like I'm a singer-songwriter myself. I, I write music that's rock and roll. I write country. I, I write uh, ballads. Uh, and, I, and I don't like to define my genre because you, we're just losing information there. You're taking away from what the artist has to offer, in my opinion. And that's what I wanted to comment about. Hey, Rob, thanks. And that is actually an opinion I've heard quite a bit, too. And I know you address this in your book, Caliphus Seni. What do you want to say to Rob? Yeah, yeah, this is this is this is a great point. I mean, the first thing to say is there are lots of artists who make music that can't quite be considered part of one genre or another. Like that's a strategy that many artists employ, and it can be a great strategy. Part of what we want from music is a feeling of freedom, a feeling that artists are free to explore and do whatever they want. But at the same time, a lot of artists making music are doing it in order to communicate, right? That's why we love music is because it puts us in communication with someone and often because it puts us in community with someone. And so just as in our real lives, we say, well, I don't want to be limited to I'm just this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. At the same time, it's often nice, it's often vitally important to us to be part of a community. And that's true for musicians as much as it's true for anyone else. So, so I, I certainly wouldn't say that all music has to be labeled or that it, you, know, you have to follow the rules of this genre or that genre. As I said, often 
breaking the rules is a way to signal your membership in a community. But I guess what I would say is that, that the, the country tradition that, that, that Rob draws on when he's writing his country songs or the rock and roll tradition that he draws on at other times, the richness of those traditions, the diversity among them, that only exists because some earlier generation of people were committed to that tradition, were committed to that community, right? The only reason we can go from uh, a country song over here to a death metal track over there to some, some slow jams over there. The only reason we have that diversity is because there were people in all of those communities who did want to work within that tradition because they liked being part of a community. And there's, there's an energy and an intensity that you only get when you have a bunch of people thinking about the same stuff, right? If you go to Nashville and you talk to a musician, you talk to a pedal steel player in Nashville, and they can tell you not only the history of their instrument, different ways it was used, minute differences between the way different people play the pedal steel. It's a really rich tradition. And that tradition only exists because people are sometimes, not always, but they are sometimes drawn to musical communities. Are you worried about that intensity going away? Uh as we see music categorized now as, as something to do while you're doing other things like working out or, yeah. um, you know, if you just want to relax on Friday, right? As opposed to buy specific genres like this, do you think that music is starting to be viewed as less of something to get super obsessive about and argue about and, and categorize? Um, there, no, yeah. I think there's always moments like that. That makes me think of, you know, you think about the late 70s and it seems like, oh, everyone's kind of coming together. We're all just going out dancing, listening to disco music. And whether you're Rod Stewart or Donna Summer or Diana Ross, you know, we can we can all have disco hits. The, the, you know, the, the record from Star Wars goes disco. Disco Duck goes disco. Like, this is a really inclusive moment, right? And it's a moment when these categories seem to be falling away a little bit. And what that produces is a backlash. What that produces is people saying disco sucks. What that produces is a backlash, not just among rockers who don't want to be part of this disco thing, not just among punks who think disco is the enemy, not just among R&B singers who think disco is mindless and we're doing real R&B music, even among dance music producers who say we want to, you know, who are creating something new, who are creating this house music movement in Chicago in the 80s, for example, is partly a reaction to the the era in which it seemed like everyone was coming together in the mainstream, right? And, and House is an example of let's go back underground, let's strip this music down, let's have our little club and let's just dance all night. So it's not that I think one tendency is going away or is good or is bad, but I think you tend to see a pendulum because these tendencies represent um, things that we want from music that are kind of incompatible, right? We want to form tribes and we also want those tribes to go away so that we can explore all sorts of things like Rob. And most of us want both of those things in differing quantities from music all the time. Well, let's hear a little bit of Donna Summer, I Feel Love, since you brought up disco. Alephisene, this was one of the songs that you were hoping we'd play. Why? What did you want to say about this? 
This song, I mean, it kind of just blows my mind every time I hear it, yeah. right? Because you have the disco movement coming out of R&B, but you're having this collision, right? This this collision of singers, of DJs who are playing these records and want longer records that are more rhythmic. In the case of uh, in, in the case of I Feel Love, you have Giorgio Moroder, this producer who's born in Italy and does a bunch of his work in Germany, who co-produces the song and creates this this beat, this electronic beat using a Moog synthesizer that sounds like you're just like in a rocket blasting upwards. And it's a great example of how a song can come up where you don't expect it and inspire all these new kinds of music, right? Out of this song, you get these traditions of house and techno. You get these things that people probably don't even think about, which is that the term electronic music and the term dance music become rough synonyms. And the reason that happens is because of records like this. And again, it's a good example of the upside of musical division. Not that there aren't also downsides, but the intensity of that disco movement and everyone thinking about what's going to make people dance is how you get a record as revolutionary as I Feel Love in 1977. We're talking with Kalafasene, his new book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to JP in Redwood City next. Hi, JP. Hi there. How are you? Great. Um, I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to say that this is a really interesting program in the sense that it's exactly it kind of hits hits home for me in the sense that, you know, I was a roadie throughout college. I'm a first generation born African and I can totally relate to going to punk rock shows and be, seeing the skinheads and getting in the mosh pit and being this only <laughs> brown kid kind of in the middle of this mosh pit. Um, mm. You know, being born in Zambia, you're just kind of like thrown away. You're like, wait, this is kind of cool. At the same time, I can be completely myself. And, you know, going through the experimentation of music with the, you know, in the 90s, being a roadie and kind of trying to produce music in our university in, in upstate New York, it was always fun to be around all that different genres of music, all that like Tribe Called Quest or the Bare Naked Ladies and all these B-side people that you might not, you know, you had in the 90s that were just fun to listen to. But now as I'm getting older and I've got my kids, it's for me, it's kind of going back to the Ali Faruka Torre, the Cora music. <laughs> and, yeah. you know. It, it, yeah. It's strange to see that evolution that you've gone through in your progression of listening to it and enjoying James Brown and listening to great soul and listening to, you know, great hip hop and then finding yourself listening to what your parents might have listened to or, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it's the Most... evolution of music is amazing. And the new music you hear, like on Spotify and stuff, gives that accessibility. You can hear bands like the Upsetters or weird you know, B-side yeah. songs that you might not have been easily accessible, but I still find it not fun. Like I took my kid to go vinyl shopping, you know, instead. And I don't find like the kids music nowadays, um, is it still accessible or is it still like what it was in our era? Now it might be that I'm an old guy and I sound like my dad now, <laughs> but what is your <laughs> opinion on modern music now? Cause it's a lot more poppy. JP, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think a couple things. One of us is, is that many of us, if we're lucky, eventually become wise enough to enjoy and appreciate the music that our parents loved. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the, the Malian music. Certainly that was playing in my household, uh, Tumani Jabate and all, all those, those great Kora musicians. 
Um, the flip side of it is that, you know, the way in which people interact with music is always changing, right? And it's not, it's not that every era is a golden age for everything, but I think that at least so far, there's any era you look at, there is something going on. There's something really exciting going on. There's a weird thing for, for, for younger listeners now where you have super casual fandom, right? Where you can put on a playlist organized by mood and, and Spotify or whoever will just feed you songs all day long and you won't even know or care who you're listening to, right? They're, and so that's, that's a very ca casual form of fandom. You can also get a very intense form of fandom when you think of people going online and going to war for their favorite pop act. Right, you think of so-called stand culture, and you can go online and just yell at people for 12 straight hours about BTS or Doja Cat <laughs> or whatever it is that you're obsessed with, right? So that's a hyper-participatory way to be a fan. And it's interesting that social media and the internet is kind of pushing us in both directions at once, pushing us to have really casual experiences with music and really intense experiences with music. Uh, someone suggested to me the other day that maybe genres are shrinking down to the size of a single artist, right? And maybe, maybe instead of saying like, I like R&B, it's like, I'm a member of Rihanna's Navy and that's what I do. And I ride for Rihanna no matter what. Maybe it's a little more like being a sports team, right? Like, well, I'm on her side and whatever she does, I'm going to root for that because that's my rooting interest. So in that sense, I think things have, things really have changed. But that said, maybe unlike some other people my age, I get my mind blown a few times a month by new music I hear, new artists I hear, even in, within the world of hip hop. I'm excited every week, Friday, when the new releases come out. I'm like, wow, there is some stuff I wouldn't necessarily have expected. And it feels like things are still changing and music is still important to people. And I think as long as music remains important to people, we'll have these arguments and we'll have these tribes, we'll have these communities, because that's what humans do, right? We form communities and we argue with each other. Well, Parajata writes, I'm a queer woman of South Indian descent. I grew up listening to a mix of music from classic rock, hip hop to Carnatic and Hindustani to grunge in middle school to punk and shoegaze in high school, including Fugazi, too. It was exotic. Nothing like my upbringing and family. It was a way I could be closer to being white. At the same time, I was unsure and insecure about my identity, trying to align with dominant culture. Now as an adult, while I listen to a variety of music from free jazz, noise, experimental R&B, post-rock, sludge metal, etc., I primarily seek out queer BIPOC music now, like Lorraine James, Saturn Rising, and Yousef days and mm. ryan writes as a 43 year old that still listens to punk rock the subhumans were the most influential band for me <laughs> their themes about anti-capitalism anti-war and throwing away the labels are still relevant today we just have a little a little time left but as i'm hearing this hearing you talk about the future and the way that we consume music now i mean 50 years from now what do you think your book would be right oh, oh. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I, 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 if I was better at predicting that, I'd go work for a label and make some make some real money. I think, I think again, one of the things we've seen is the globalization of the music marketplace, right? The one of the major, if not the major, story of music in America right now is the story of Latin music in America, right? That's that's driving a lot of the culture. Someone like Bad Bunny is as central to our musical conversation as any figure in America, right? He's, he's from Puerto Rico. So I think that's one huge change that we've seen. But for me, the main thing I would hope is that music remains important, right? I love music. So I love that music really 
is the place where we go to figure out a lot of this stuff. I think that's true for music even more than it is for novels or for theater or for film or for gaming or for some of these other things. And so I hope that music remains important enough for people to fight about, for people to use to form their identity and that make people want to embrace some things and reject others. That's how you know that people really care. Well, Kalafasane, thank you so much. Thanks for major labels. And we're going to go out on a little Paul Simon because, I mean, he just turned 80, right? And this was a favorite album of your family. So diamonds on the soles of her shoes. And thanks, Ariana Pell, for producing this segment. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.